Well, some of you know, last week we started this sermon series called The Bible Seriously, and we are seeking, especially as we begin reading the New Testament together and as we begin this new year, to understand what it is that Scripture actually says about itself, that we might take it seriously. How many of you have started reading the New Testament with us? Wow, that is so great. Praise God. We're a week in. If you weren't here last week and maybe you haven't heard about it, we are um, taking between last Sunday, which was uh, Epiphany, and June 9th, which is Pentecost, to read the whole New Testament together. It's about 154 days, about 50 verses a day, and even if you um, weren't with us this last week, we would invite you to join us. It's been such a gift to me to know that we're all reading together, so jump right in. There's The guide is in the back, or you can just sign up online, and we'll shoot it right to you every morning at 5 a.m., so what a gift. But as we do that, we want to, um, this year, our theme is being shaped by Scripture, And it really is an amazing thing that the way that God has made us is that we are continually formed and shaped and influenced by all different kinds of things. And I so want for myself and for our church that we would be shaped by the Word of God, by the good news, the hope, and the joy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we would submit ourselves, that God would shape us in those ways. And not only that we would know God's Word, but that we would take it seriously. I had a great conversation with someone this week about taking the Bible seriously. And this woman, she's in her late 30s, and she has come to faith in the last couple years. And one of the things that I love about her is that she always brings a list of things that she wants to talk about. And she's really bright. She has a PhD. She runs her own company. She kind of teaches at CU on the side. She's just, like, really amazing. And um, as her faith in Christ has grown so much, she um, is just, she's reading scripture, and she read uh, last week in Leviticus 19 that tattoos are forbidden. So one of the things on her list was to talk about her tattoo, and to come and know, is it okay that she has this tattoo? And I love that. But even more, she wanted to know if it is okay for her to have a tattoo, why is it okay if the Bible says that it isn't okay? And how do we know if we're actually taking the Bible seriously if we don't obey all of it? And further, if it was okay for her to have a tattoo and not submit herself to that Old Testament law, how do we know which of the Old Testament laws we're supposed to obey and which ones we don't have to pay attention to? Because there certainly are things like do not murder and do not commit adultery that everybody should be following. They were such great questions. I wonder, I'm imagining some of you have asked some of those questions. You've had some people ask you some of those questions, and they touch not only on scripture, but on obedience and faithfulness and what it means to take scripture seriously and the role of Jesus and what it means to do life together as a people. So we're going to explore all of those things this morning as we look into really a beautiful psalm. So let's pray as we come to God's word. Oh Lord, we do pray that you would open our eyes, that you would be our teacher this morning, that your spirit would speak to us, uh, lift your word into our hearts, that we might know you more, and that we might follow you and delight in you. Thank you for each one who's here, that you intend to shape and form each of them and draw them to yourself. So we pray, Lord, that you would do that uh, by your grace this morning. In Christ's name, amen. All right, so open up to Psalm 19, if you would, 
uh, it's on page 471 in the Pew Bibles. I would love for you to have it open on your lap, even if that's not something that you're used to. Open up those Pew Bibles, 471. Today's sermon, I'll just tell you, feels more like a teaching uh, than preaching. It's kind of thick. Um, So even if you're not used to having the Bible open on your lap, we're just going to be walking right through the psalm, and I think it'd be really helpful to um, do that today. So C.S. Lewis called this psalm the greatest poem in the entire Psalter of all the psalms. And it really is amazing, and it's in three sections, and I've entitled this message, Skies, Scriptures, and Servants, and you will see why. But this first six verses of this beautiful psalm are about how God's glory is displayed in creation. And especially, he's talking about the expanse and the grandeur of the sky, and the rhythm and order of night and day, and the warmth and the movement, especially, of the sun. So listen to this declaration. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens God has pitched a tent for the sun. It is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. We're going to stop there with this first section. So this is a beautiful poem about creation and how the order and the beauty and the rhythm of creation points to a creator. Without any words, it says, nature declares the glory of God. And I think many, if not all of us, have had an experience of being moved at least to consider a creator, if not worship that creator, as we are out and surrounded by beauty. It's one of the gifts of living where we do, that we find ourselves stunned by a sunset over the mountains or the beauty of simply watching the snow fall from the sky. Or if you leave this place to go to the edge and to sit on the beach and to see the expanse of the ocean. Carol Ausa, artist who did this welcome home piece for us, um, she said that most of her art has at least half if not three quarters of the piece of sky. Because skies are a reminder to her of how big God is and how small we are, how majestic his cosmic power is. So I just pulled out some of her pieces that show just the bigness of sky and the beauty and uh, the expanse of God's creation. Just like the psalmist, she is declaring, the heavens declare the glory of God, the skies proclaim the work of God. Of his hands. But part of what the psalmist is saying here is that even as amazing as the skies are, even as the sun and the created order of day and night show God's glory and praise him as the creator, they do not fully reveal who God is or what God's purpose is in the world. 
There is a kind of knowledge that we uh, have available to us as we contemplate creation. We should be moved to worship while we are looking up at the night sky or while we're hiking and we see the beauty around us. In fact, Romans says that God's eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen and understood from what he has made so that people are without excuse to know that there is a God. But the knowledge of God displayed in creation is not complete. It's not the life-saving, life-changing, life-giving knowing of God's heart and will and purpose in the world without the word of God along with it. We may be able to see the power and divinity in creation, as Romans says, but God intends for us to know much more of him. I love how this hymn from Isaac Watts in the 1700s captures this reality. We're actually going to sing this hymn at the end of worship today. But he wrote this, The heavens declare thy glory, Lord, in every star thy wisdom shines. But when our eyes behold thy word, we read thy name in fairer lines. The skies and creation can reveal something about God, but they can't reveal the depth and intimacy of God's presence and love and purpose the way that the Word does. So if you have your Bibles open still, again, page 471, look again at that verse 1. The psalmist writes, the heavens declare the glory of God. And something that's interesting that we might not know just at first glance here is that the word there for God is El. And El in the Hebrew simply means deity or divinity. So yes, the heavens and the skies and the sun declare that there is a God, a creator who created all things. I know it's kind of small to see up there. But as we look at the second section of this psalm, we see an important shift, a deepening. If you look down at verse 7, the beginning of this second section, it changes here, and it says, the law of the Lord is perfect. And the word, therefore, Lord is Yahweh, not El. And Yahweh is this special, specific, loaded name for God historically and theologically. And what the psalmist is saying here is not only is God the divine and powerful creator of all things, but he is Yahweh, literally the I am. The one who graciously revealed himself in history to the people of Israel, who broke through the silence of nature to come and bring his presence, to guide his people, to dwell among them, to reveal his love and goodness and plan of salvation for Israel, but also that they would be a blessing to all the nations, that God, Yahweh, God himself, the one who created the skies, is the one who broke through creation to come and dwell among the people. So the psalmist is declaring that the one who created the galaxies, who holds it together still, is the one who made you and who has come to know you and to reveal himself to you. It's an amazing thing. God had to come. Creation wasn't enough to reveal fully who he is to us, and so he came. So listen to this gift. This, this psalm is about really the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. That's what the psalmist is specifically referring to. And scripture tells us this fuller picture of what God has done for us. So listen to what it says about the beauty of God's word, this gift to his people. 
The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. The law, the statutes, the precepts, the commands, the, f- the fear, the decrees of the Lord, of Yahweh. What the psalmist is saying that in every sense, in every dimension, every part of the Lord's word, of Yahweh's Torah, is good. It's perfect. It's trustworthy. It's right. It's radiant. It's pure. It's solid. It's righteous. It's much like what we heard in Paul's second letter to Timothy last week. All of Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and equipping and training. God's word is life-giving and full of life for us. God intends for it to be a revelation of who he is and how we are to live together as his people. But part of what the psalmist knows is that at times it's just easier for God's people, including us, I think, to be enthusiastic about the glory of God revealed in the mountains and in the skies while we consider God's commands more like a burden or a wet blanket, something that we kind of bear up under as we're already living this kind of difficult, countercultural, sacrificial life. I know so many people uh, who say, well, hiking is my church, and all I need to know about God I can see just in the mountains around me. And I am someone who actually loves to worship outside. And I have had some of the most moving times of being overwhelmed by God's love and presence sitting under a waterfall or at the edge of a mountain looking over a great expanse. So sometimes I haven't known what to say, like what it is that feels incomplete about just looking at the created order. Because I know that without the revelation of God in his word, that something is not fully there for us to know about who God is. And this was true for the people of Israel. They wrestled in some of these ways, especially when they were exiles, when they were taken to other lands and the way they were surrounded by people who had all different kinds of worship practices and uh, indulgences and idols that they would engage with. Their challenge, I think, was not so subtle as ours. And at time, I think it probably was tempting for them to move away from Yahweh's law, from the things that God had set up for them as a community, especially when Yahweh seemed silent and distant, when their faithfulness didn't yield the goodness that they hoped that it would. They wondered if maybe they should give some of their offerings to their neighbor's idols just in case for their crops, for the rain to come for fertility. Maybe they should check out that temple prostitution to see if that might bring some blessing. Or even, as archaeology has confirmed to us, sacrifice their children to Molech to call on blessing and to appease the wrath of these gods of their neighbors. Especially given those other options that were right around them, You can imagine that every time they would return to God's law, to the Torah, 
to hear about this Yahweh who had come to dwell among them, that they are reminded that God's ways give beauty and goodness and care for one another and order to their life together. That God's word provides wisdom and direction, the most important and the best wisdom, especially in contrast to these other ways of life. God's law is sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. As one writer said, the word of the Lord is like fresh air after being trapped in a cave, like sanity after a nightmare, like cool, fresh mountain water in the heat of the day. It's right and pure and wise, and it's true for us as well. And as I've been spending time in this psalm, I have realized that I don't often think of Scripture as this beautiful, as this gift sweeter than honey, more precious than gold, but that is what God has for us in here, goodness for life. He has given us everything that we need for life and godliness. Do I come to God's word with the same anticipation that I do when I look out and see the beauty around me? Do I anticipate that kind of delight? I want to as I come to God's word. In fact, I think it would be great for those of us who are reading the New Testament together, but all of us, to at least one day take the Bible with us and maybe drive drive up Flagstaff and just look out over the expanse of beauty and read God's word there. And remember that the goodness and beauty that we see, we also hold in our hands in an even fuller and more beautiful way. Maybe it would mean just stepping out onto your driveway at night and looking up at the stars and remembering that the God who created all of those is the one who speaks to us in his word, that we would be moved to worship by what we see around us, and by this amazing gift that God has given to us. Both creation and scripture are meant to give joy to our hearts and light to our eyes. And when we know God through his word, we are even more fully able to delight in the things that he has made and the way that he has come. So let's turn back to that question about tattoos. One of these laws written in the Torah How are we to understand these laws in the Old Testament today as people who would delight in God's word and know it as a gift to us, filled with beauty, and who also take it seriously? Well, those of us, again, who are doing this New Testament reading, we read in Matthew 3 this week that Jesus said he has not come to abolish the law, the Torah, but to fulfill it. Do you remember that? So what does that mean? Well, the most helpful way that I have heard it said is that because of Jesus, there are really only 12 Old Testament laws from the Torah that we continue to live by. The Ten Commandments and the Shema, or the Great Commandment, which we see both in Deuteronomy 6 and in the Gospels. It's called the moral law that we see in the Torah. And Jesus was asked this. We'll get to this reading. I believe it's next Sunday. Teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied this, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This moral law, 
which is spoken of again in the Torah, sustains through all time and all culture. Love the Lord your God and love one another. All of the law hangs on these two commandments. The other laws in the Torah are purity laws, ceremonial, ritual, even political and sacrificial laws that were required for Israel's purity in worship and in life, and for them really to be a set-apart people from the rest of the world as they were in relationship with Yahweh. And before Jesus came in creation, before the incarnation where he came in the flesh, these purity laws were actually a means of grace, that this creator of the cosmos would come and dwell this holy God would come and be among a sinful people, both in covenant relationship, but also rightly separated from his holiness for their sake, right? These were purity laws provided by grace for the people. But what's even more amazing is that in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, all of these purity laws and the requirements for separation from God were fulfilled and even superseded And then when he died on the cross, he was the once and for all sacrifice. Sacrificial laws are no longer required. In his death and resurrection, Jesus fulfilled the law and all of its requirements. And what's more, his holiness and his purity are given to those who trust him as Lord. It's an amazing thing. And when we did our sermon series on the Ten Commandments a couple summers ago, what we, what we celebrated is that this moral law that God has given to us really are not meant to be oppressive rules. They are meant to give freedom for us to know the way of life that God intends, to love the Lord and to love one another and to live in these ways that reflect his goodness, that we might move about in freedom like John 10 says, coming in and going out, knowing the shepherd's voice. Those remain. Romans 8 talks about this fulfillment of the law in this way. Therefore, though, is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Amen. Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law and all its demands. And the Old Testament to uh, the Israelites, and we were reading about this, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they just don't know what to do with this. It's so world-rocking to them that they cannot receive and accept Jesus. And we've been seeing that disconnect as we've been reading. But what's more is that this man, this one in the flesh, has come not only to forgive sins and to fulfill the purity laws and the sacrificial requirements of the cross, he is also saying, I am Yahweh. I am the I am. I am the one who created the stars and the moon and sets all of it in course. I am the Lord of the Torah. I am the God of Israel. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the word of God made flesh. Greater than creation, greater than the law, the ultimate revelation of God. 
Jesus Christ has come to show the glory of God to us. And therefore, because of Jesus, things like tattoos and eating lobster and not shaving the side of your beard are no longer things that separate you from God. It's a grace. So then we move to this final section of the psalm, where this unspoken glory of the skies and the clarity and beauty of the spoken revelation of God in Scripture moves to now a confession of the human heart. The psalmist uses this language. He calls himself God's servant, and I love that. And so as he's talking about God's law, he says, by them your servant is warned, in verse 11. In keeping them, there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and redeemer. It's as if the beauty of the skies and the perfection of God's law evokes a sudden just awareness of his need to just fall down before the Lord and say, I am your servant. Forgive me for, my, for the things I don't even know. I need your help. And then just as the psalm begins with praise and describing the speech of the heavens, the psalmist is saying, would what comes out of my own mouth, the words of my own mouth, be able to join with creation? Would they be able to join with the beauty of your word and bring you glory? Yahweh, the great I am, would I even be able to utter such a prayer that we would all, from the skies to the servants, be part of glorifying God. It's really an amazing, amazing thing, an amazing move of this psalm. I understand now why C.S. Lewis would say this is the most beautiful psalm in the entire Psalter. To move from the expanse of creation through the beauty of God's word into our hearts that we might respond to him. It's an amazing grace. And I've been thinking this week about how it is for us to come to the beauty and goodness, to think about God's word as a gift to us, that we would delight and say it's sweeter than honey, more precious than gold. And I've been thinking about it, this is an inadequate illustration, but it's just one that I've been thinking about, the way that a good father loves his children. And one of the things that has come as part of our move to Boulder this summer is that we have these new bike routes. So it used to be at our old house that the way to ride to school was that you went down and turn left, and you just joined with the swarm of all the other children, and you would get to school. So now Jed, our youngest, he's seven, and his favorite thing in the world is to ride his bike, and it does not matter that it is 17 degrees some mornings. He still wants to ride his bike to school. So we have really sought as seeking to be faithful parents to train him, to give him what he needs so that he can ride to school because his ride now is way more complex. He has to cross two big streets, he has to go over this wooded path where a bear has been sighted at least a dozen times since we moved here this summer. 
and he has to pass this little library on the side where you can give and take books, which it just seems to like suck the kids over there on the way to school and make them late. But we have really sought to give him everything he needs from putting his helmet on before he even gets on his bike to know this is the part where you ride the sidewalk and then when you cross over these big streets and then you do not stop at the library until you're the way home from school. And under no circumstances do you stop where the bear has been sighted in the woods. You just keep Keep going until you get to Will's house, and then you can wait. And then as that road opens up, because there are all these funky ways where they've built in Boulder where it's not a through street and you can't drive there anyway, enjoy that expanse, and that's where you can ride your wheelies and go over things and take your time. But when you see that crossing guard, that's where you stop. And we have sought to equip him in every way so that he can get from home to school safely, to know the dangers, to know the places of freedom. And I've thought about that in some ways, like God's word. But here is the amazing gift of living on this side of the incarnation. The gift with Jed is that he actually never has to ride to school by himself. Scott always goes with him, which means it is especially fun for him. If his favorite thing is to ride his bike, his most favorite thing is to ride his bike with his dad. That even though we have sought to train him in every way, he never has to go alone. He knows the way to go, but his dad will always be with him and can speak those things to him and be his company along the way. And that really is the gift for us as we live on this side when Jesus has said, I have come in the flesh. Me, the one who created the skies, the one who has given you instructions for life, I've also come to dwell in you that I know the meditations of your heart. I actually dwell in you, and I will not leave you or forsake you. I am always with you. What an amazing and beautiful promise we have been given. It's my prayer for us this week as we explore, as we walk through the New Testament together, is that we would know this as a gift of delight, of goodness, of beauty for us as we journey with the Lord. Let's pray. O God of creation, we simply ask that these words of my mouth and these meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. Jesus, our Lord, the great I am, you are our rock and our redeemer. So we gladly pray these things in your name. Amen.